So there is a verse uh, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, that says the rituals and the celebrations and the observations and Sabbaths that the Jews uh, were keeping are shadows of things to come, but the substance is Christ. So the idea we have all through the scripture is that these celebrations and holidays and uh, what we're about to read in Numbers chapter 8, all of these things pertain to Jesus. They paint a picture for us. They let us understand the character of uh, his form and person and uh, you know, his conduct. So for us, as we read through Numbers, I'm going to jump around in the scripture uh, to show us the things that have been revealed by the Holy Spirit as pertaining to what we're discussing in Numbers chapter 8. So some of it is uh, more poetic and, and uh, still a little bit uh, veiled. Uh, others of it is declared outright as being fulfillment and uh, very easily seen and understood. But uh, you know, as we begin here, and I'm making these parallel assessments, uh, I hope that you understand that it's it's not just my assessment of these things. That the Scripture itself is making these revelations for us. Uh, you know, uh, explaining uh, what these things. Uh, represent and what they intend. So Numbers chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and say to him, When you arrange the lamps, the seven lamps shall give light in front of the lamp stand. And Aaron did so. He arranged the lamps to face toward the front. I underlined that. Of the lampstand as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, this workmanship of the lamp was hammered gold from its shaft to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses. So he made the lampstand. So this is referring to the seven armed lampstand, the menorah that was inside the tabernacle of meeting. So as the priests would go in, the only illumination in that inner chamber was this lampstand. Uh, the uh, walls and the roof covering of the tabernacle, the tent, were very thick, very dense, uh, a woven fabric covered with animal skins. There's no light inside there. The only illumination inside there is this menorah. Now, if your mind is jumping uh, forward to the menorah of Hanukkah, okay, that's a very different uh, candlelight, a very different apparatus. This one has the seven arms. Uh, you may see others that have differing numbers. This is representative of the Holy Spirit. We see that described to us elsewhere in the scripture. The thing I want to focus on this morning is that 
the lamps are to be arranged on this menorah. When it says lamps, some of your translations you know, refer to it as a candle stand or the candle sticks. Okay, it, it is oil lamps. Uh, you, you've perhaps seen that Middle Eastern hammered uh, lamp that uh, you, you might even think like Aladdin's lamp that's shaped like an almond. It has uh, that sort of elongated oval pointed end uh, to it. So upon the menorah, upon the seven arms, there is a lamp on each one. And the Lord wants them positioned in such a way that the light will be facing out. Uh, you're probably thinking like I was, like, well, of course you would put the light uh, facing out. Uh, it's important to remember that the Holy Spirit is making sure that this is recorded this way. So while we might think of that as, you know, sort of a redundant statement that you would put that in there telling us that the lamps should be facing forward, this again is a spiritual image that the the light, the illumination is to be outward into the room, not back against the curtain or facing away from the object of attention directly across from it there is the table of showbread where there are uh, the 12 loaves of bread that are laid out by each of the tribes that are provisional to the work of the ministry of the priests and representative of God's provision for the people Right? He's providing the grain and the bread for them, and they're giving back to the Lord of what he's provided, their substance and uh, their nourishment there. <clears throat> the light, uh, we are referred to, we'll talk about that in a moment, as the light of the world. What should we be focused upon is the question here. So, so again, Colossians telling us that these are shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Jesus Christ. Our lives should be illuminating to the world Jesus Christ. That's, that's what our hearts are. And you're thinking, well, of course. I mean, that's, that's what we do. That's what we're supposed to do. Uh, there's a thing that happens in the life of believers where we get focused on things surrounding our point of focus rather than the actual point of focus. Okay, Right now, I'm getting emails from some of you, but lots of people in Christianity that are asking questions about coronavirus and the election and the conspiracy, and Bill Gates, and Mark of the Beast, and End of the World, and tons of stuff surrounding the issue that we should be focused on. The issue we should be focused on is Jesus Christ. Look, there's all kinds of things to have discussions about. There's all kinds of things. I'm not saying don't pay attention to them, okay? Okay, pay attention to them. Focus on Jesus Christ. Is your relationship with the Lord stronger than it's ever been? I hope so. 
right? What I'm running into is Christians sending me emails, calling me, talking to me directly, and they're scared. They're worried. They're concerned. What if the election uh, doesn't go this? What if we end up with, you know, an ultra left-wing, liberal, progressive, communistic, you know, and they're just crazed with things behind the scenes. Uh, look, I'm very interested in the things that are behind the scenes. Right? Behind this menorah, there is a curtain that is woven with beautiful imagery. Imagery, okay? Not the actual substance, but the imagery is behind this. If we dig deeper beyond that, there's all kinds of framework and construction. In the end, spiritually, God is the one that's in control. Not all of these other circumstances. Not all of these other... I'm, I, I hope you hear me. I'm not telling you that you shouldn't read about these things. I'm not telling you that you should have no concern for them. I'm not telling you be naive and uninformed. Just make sure that the primary focus is what the primary focus should be. You know, are you spending more time in the Word than you ever have been? You know, uh, John Sear comes to me this morning and says, you know, what was that book you mentioned last week? Uh, Calvary Road. Uh, there's a book uh, that's worthy of paying attention to for the next week or so. If you don't, if you don't have Calvary Road, uh, you can download it for, you know, the audiobook. Have it read to you for, you know, four or five dollars. That's an incredible investment. That will free your mind from so many things that you don't need to be concerned about in this world. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll read just a few pages of that book and realize I've got more things to pay attention to inside myself. Uh, than anything in the world that I need to be concerned about. You know, as far as where my relationship is with the Lord and what it is that I'm supposed to be doing with my person and my walk and my speech, my thoughts, my conversations, uh, the depth and relationship of the Lord. Now, look, again, if you think I'm just making this perspective come to light, consider what is said right there actually two times, but Focusing on verse 4, uh, do this according to the pattern which the Lord has shown Moses. Don't do it according to uh, what, you know, you think or what uh, you are comfortable with or uncomfortable with or what the people around you are insisting, right? Uh, your thoughts, your life, your behavior should be according to the pattern that the Lord has shown. Right? You know, they come to Jesus all concerned about what are we going to do about food, clothing, and shelter, essentially, is the summary of what they're saying. We've left our jobs. We've left our businesses to follow you. We've left our families to follow you. And Jesus makes that statement, right? It says what? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. All of those things you're concerned about in life, if you make Jesus Christ the primary focus of your life, all of those things will automatically be added to you. You don't have to be obsessed and concerned and worried about those 
other things. You know, a few of us gathered around the word this morning in regard to this specific subject. I, I reminded us of Isaiah chapter 6, where there, I mean, profound prophet of the scripture, Isaiah, says that in the year that King Uzziah died, okay, that, that's a serious year right there. Serious reformer, right? Uzziah had come, and his campaign was that he was going to drain the swamp. You know what I'm saying? And everybody was all excited. And there was great reform happening. And things were cooking. And then he dies. Uzziah is no longer on the throne. And what did Isaiah see? His eyes were lifted up and he saw the Lord was seated upon his throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Here we are gathered together as the temple, right? Not in the temple. We're gathered together as the meeting place of God. We are the temple of God. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit living inside us. Does the train of his robe fill our hearts? Right? Or is it the headlines that consume our thoughts? Uh, you know, read the headlines again. Make sure it's the train of his robe that fills your mind. The glory of Jesus Christ. And, and I'll say this uh, very plainly. And his soon coming. Right, His arrival is so close. You consider what's going on around the world. Just, I mean, one very significant portion. There are so many things that are historic in nature, but move away, you know, whatever bent you have politically and look at the fact that there was a peace agreement reached between the United Arab Emirates and Israel. You know, whether you're aware of it or not, just, you know, uh, check that box like huge. That's massive going on right now. The Middle East is changing and moving or watching as there's a massive polarization. Uh, you know, you may be wondering like I am about uh, what actually happened on the docks there in Lebanon. You know, when a, sh a Russian vessel that has been docked there for more than seven years just suddenly explodes and levels so much territory. We may never know. What's going on inside Iran? Are you familiar with the fact that, you know, <clears throat> seven ships all associated with the nuclear reactor program that's right there on the shore, all seven of those ships caught fire and burned. <clears throat> you know, kids playing with matches, you got to be careful. <clears throat> Maybe Israeli kids, you never know. But anyway, it's, it's interesting. To see how things are developing and cooking. And within that same subject, where's the focus? Jesus Christ. The Lord's eminent return. His work in my heart and mind in preparation for his soon return. According to the pattern which the Lord shows. Not, not what we think. Not what we're focused on. What the Lord is focused on. And what he's drawing our attention to.
this uh, illumination, right? We have Psalm 119, verse 105, that says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've reminded us many times that we often want to think of his word as being this laser that reaches far out into the future and illuminates all the way to the spiritual horizon so we can see and know so many things for such a long time ahead. And really what his word does is illuminate our feet right where they should be today. How I should get up and prepare myself for this morning and how I'm going to walk through the day. His word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's going to show me the steps that I could take. Show me the direction that I should go. You know, we, we are not a people that like to trust. You know, walk by faith, not by sight. We, we want to see all the way to the end of the road. Show me how this is all going to turn out. You know, this decision that I'm about to make. You know, am I going to go to school here or am I going to go to school over there? Am I going to make this my major or that my major? Am I going to marry this person or should I not get married at all? Uh, should I you know, take this job or should I look for another job? We want to see all the way down the road. And the Lord is saying, I'll illuminate what's right in front of you so that you can take the next step safely so that you don't have to wreck yourself like you've done so many times in the past. I'll illuminate what's right in front of you with my word. That means you're going to have to be in the Word, right? You, can, you can't have it illuminate your life if you're not utilizing it. If you're not reading the Word, if you're not being taught the Word, if you're not absorbing the Word, then it's not going to illuminate your life. <clears throat> when it is illuminating our lives, then we can illuminate others. This is Jesus speaking in John chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Uh, You know, if we are following the Lord with our lives, we'll have what we need. We will have the illumination, especially internally. Later in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I've said this many times in regard to this lamp, the Lord's work in our lives, his illumination in our lives, right? It was an oil lamp that he was referring to. I mean, you know, some translations, as I said earlier, say candle, but, you know, even in this illustration, it would be dangerous. You don't take your wicker basket and put the lamp down and cover the lamp up with the wicker basket, right? Put it under a basket or under your bed, right? You know, that's not only going to destroy the basket, it could potentially destroy your home. You know, I'm not just looking to create humor out of that situation. 
if you're hiding the word of God that way and his illumination in your life that way, not letting the world plainly seen, it's going to destroy you first in the process. And in the end, the light will be plainly seen. You know, the Lord's work in your life will be known by people once it has found its way clear into the open for the world to know and recognize. Uh, you might be a person that says, well, I'm a silent witness. You know that I'm going to criticize that, right? Because the term witness is where we get the word martyr, right? Now, if I said you were a silent martyr, that doesn't really work at, at the same pace. You understand? A martyr dies for their faith. That's a very public thing. You don't get to say I'm a witness and to be silent at the same time. You know, the best way to perhaps think of that is a court case, right? If you were hanging out with me last Tuesday, you know, until one o'clock in the morning playing Monopoly at my house, and now you've been accused of murdering someone on that same night, and you say, well, Will Cash can testify for me, and I show up in court and say, well, I like to be a silent witness. You're going to be angry with me because I have the ability to justify you. And this is what Jesus Christ is calling us to be, not silent witnesses, bold witnesses. And then that's, in fact, why he gave the Holy Spirit, right? Some of us come from a background where we think that the Holy Spirit has been given to the church so that we can, you know, behave in flamboyant ways. That's not what the scripture said. Jesus told the disciples to remain in Jerusalem until they had received power from on high, right? And we obviously know that to be the Holy Spirit, the baptism of the Holy Spirit that happened in Acts chapter 2, that you may be my witnesses. The power of the Holy Spirit was so that they could be his witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, right? Samaria and the uh, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. His martyrs, his public testimony. We are the lights of the world. And, and there is a world that wants to silence us right now. A very militant, angry, ungodly, wicked side of our culture that wants us to shut our mouths and sit down. Stay home. Don't gather in groups of more than 10 or 50, depending on the size of your building. Not going to happen. We need to stand up and publicly declare and suffer the consequences if that is what is necessary. Back in Numbers chapter 8, looking at verse 5, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the Levites from among the children of Israel and cleanse them ceremonially. Thus you shall do to them to cleanse them. Sprinkle water of purification on them and let them shave all their body and let them wash their clothes and so make themselves clean. Then let them take a young bull with its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. You shall take another young bull as a sin offering and you shall bring the Levites before the tabernacle of meeting. And you shall gather together the whole congregation of the children of Israel. At a minimum, that's four million people. Right? 
the entire state of Maine roughly, you know, three times over, a little more than three times over. Four million people. It's probably closer to nine million people, depending on how your calculations work. But this is a massive congregation of people. A bigger point is, right, you know there's going to be people way on the outside of that gathering that cannot hear or see what's going on in the middle of that gathering. But they need to know why they're there, and their hearts need to be aligned with why they're there. That means information is going to have to move through the crowd. This is going to have to be distributed, disseminated to everyone that they know. We are gathering together as a people that the priests could be consecrated, the Levites could be cleansed and set apart for the work of the Lord. Gather the whole congregation of the children of Israel, so you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall Lay their hands on the Levites. You may want to remember that it says that. Lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. A wave offering was an offering that would be presented visually before the Lord, but then either given to the priests or given to the person who had brought the sacrifice so that they could go and consume their portion of it. So these Levites are going to be presented before the Lord publicly so everyone can see, but then they're going to be set back about their duties to go about their work and performance of ministry. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls, and they shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. Again, the word atonement, think of at one the way the Lord wants us to be unified with him, bound together with him. Laying on of the hands. Uh, this is something I'll reference uh, in, in a little bit here, but it's the idea of the trans. It can be of guilt or it can be of association. You know, when they would place their hands upon a person and offer up prayers and sacrifice, the idea was I'm associating myself with this person. I'm attaching myself to this person in a form of acceptance so that, you know, my approval can be seen in my touching of this person. When it comes to the bulls, it's the idea of guilt. Laying the hands upon the bull, they would confess the sins, symbolically transferring the guilt to the bull who was going to be offered to the Lord. Symbolically, we should lay our hands upon Jesus Christ. That we show ownership and attachment to, but we also transfer our sin to the one who can bear our sin. Who can cleanse us from our sin. There needs to be that personal identification. Again, if you're a person that's saying, I like to keep this to myself, that's not how the scripture relays our faith. Our faith is to be a very public thing, right? If we will confess with our mouth, then we will be saved. 
the open profession that I am a believer, publicly being baptized in order to show the world I identify with Jesus Christ's death, his burial, that's submerging into the water, and his resurrection up out of the water, up out of the grave, into a newness of life so that the whole world can see I'm willing to go through this process to prove I'm attached, associated, and affixed to this process. This is, this is my identification with it. So here, ceremonially, they're attaching themselves to the priests and then transferring their guilt to these animals that will be consumed both as a sin offering and secondly as a burnt offering. Uh, the sin offering is literally the transference to say, this animal is symbolically taking my place in death. The burnt offering was simply to make the idea of I'm giving myself wholly over to the Lord. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, there was also a peace offering that could be given where the Lord gets a portion of the animal burned for him, the priest is given a portion of the sacrifice that has been roasted so that he can eat of it, and then the person who brought the sacrifice is given a portion of it so that they can eat of it. The idea is that the Lord and the priest and the individual who brought the offering are sharing in a meal together. Each is consuming their portion in the way that is prescribed for them. So here you have the sin offering and the burnt offering that are given. 13, verse 13 of Numbers chapter 8. And you shall stand the Levites before Aaron and his sons and then offer them like a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel and the Levites shall be mine. Now this process of the Levites being the priests, actually began in their failure. I hope you hear me in this this morning. Right? Because we sometimes get the mentality like, nah, other people can serve the Lord, but I'm not equipped for it. Other people can serve the Lord, but I'm a failure. Other people can serve the Lord, but my calling is not that high. There's all kinds of different things that we do to sort of shrink away from what the Lord has called us all to. The tribe of Levi descended from Levi himself. And where this separation began was when Levi and his brother Simeon in Genesis chapter 49, had actually been cursed by their father because they had demonstrated a very wrathful, very sinful behavior. Genesis 49 verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly, for in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath 
for it is cruel. And then here's the statement. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. They weren't going to have any inheritance as each of the other tribes had. No portion of land that was going to be given to them. When we first read this, if we don't have any knowledge of how it turns out in the end, you can be thinking like, wow, they really shortchanged themselves. They let their anger and their wrath get the better of them. And what happens over time is the Lord works in their hearts and their minds and their lives and in their tribe until that scattering becomes this priesthood. They get scattered throughout all of the tribes of Israel to be the priests amongst the nation of Israel. God takes that wrath and he converts it to righteousness. That anger they had, which... Consider, their sister Dinah had been violated, literally raped, and they were filled with rage, and they went and carried out what they considered to be God's vengeance upon the entire nation that had violated their sister. Killed everyone. Killed a whole nation of people as the result of their Rage. Genesis chapter 34, verse 25. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain. Listen, <laughs> Simeon and Levi had gone to this nation and said, Since you violated our sister, the only option for you is to marry our sister. But we don't let anybody who is uncircumcised marry anyone from our nation. So if you want to marry our sister, you're all going to have to be circumcised. And they said, okay, we'll marry, we'll marry her. We'll, you know, be circumcised. They were circumcised. And on the third day when they were helplessly in pain from the circumcision, that's when they attacked. This is who they were. Simeon and Levi were schemers beyond your wildest imagination. You know, harm somebody to the point where they can't move with the dexterity they could have a few days ago and then attack them. So there in pain, the two sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took their sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamer and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out, the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. That's where, listen to me, that's where their priesthood began. I'm not giving you any justification for their behavior, right? Think about it. They involve their religion in their wrath. That's not the plan of God. God has to work on them, grind them down, change them, convert them until they're the tribe of Levi who are ready to be priests. So much so that God calls the entire congregation together and says, I want you to lay hands on these guys. I want you to identify yourself with them, that they can go and minister on your behalf amongst all of the tribes of Israel. It's quite a remarkable thing. That wrath, that anger is converted into righteousness, but it remains... Because you see in this very book that we're reading, Numbers, 
You get to chapter 25 and the nation of Israel has fallen into horrible sexual sin and there's a plague that is now fallen upon the people and God calls them to repentance and they all go, yeah, yeah, right, we're with you, we'll repent. And they go right back to their sin. And so we read in Numbers chapter 25, verse 7, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them, the man and the woman who had gone into the tent to commit sexual sin, he thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And if you're thinking, wow, that's harsh. Keep in mind, we're in chapter 8. That occurs in chapter 25. If you're thinking like, my goodness, I thought God was purifying the nation of Israel. I thought he was stopping them from this type of wrathful behavior. I left off where I did because Numbers chapter 25 verse 9 says those who died in the plague were 24,000 people. How merciful is it of Phineas to say, we've got to put an end to this right here. I'm going to kill these two people, but it's so that people will have a fear of God and the death from the plague that is occurring will stop. He kills a man and woman engaged in fornication, but he stops the plague that at that point had killed 24,000 people. 24,000 people. You know how many people live in Ellsworth? The second largest town in America, by the way, geographically. There's only 7,500 people that live in Ellsworth. You know how many people live on Mount Desert Island? 10,000 people. All of Mount Desert Island, all of Trenton, all of Ellsworth, dead. Phineas steps in with a javelin and brings an end to the plague so that the people fear. This Levite who has this intense relationship with God and this fervent for purity that does come from wrath, but it's been converted to righteousness, halts the sin in the community. Listen, I am sick and tired of watching pastor after pastor after pastor stand around and wring their hands about who they're going to offend with the word of God. They're scared of who they're going to offend. By calling sin, sin. By calling people to repent of the things that they're doing. You understand that as a pastor, I have to answer. I have to answer for how I've conducted myself in your midst and the righteousness I've called you to. The example I've set and the standard that I've asked you to apply yourself to, I have to answer for that. It's a very serious thing. These men are, you know, laying their having having the nation of Israel lay their hands on them and they're laying their hands on the sacrifice. Who's the sacrifice for us you guys, right? It's Jesus Christ. 
I'm going to lay my hands on Jesus Christ as you lay your hands on me. And we've got to agree together, this is our sacrifice right here. And we're going to live by this. There needs to be a serious, oh, hellfire and brimstone, that preacher. Listen, there needs to be hellfire and brimstone in the message. You know why? Because hellfire and brimstone are real. They are real. Have you meditated upon hell? Oh, I don't like to think about that stuff. You should. You should go home and think about living in darkness for all of eternity, alone, Right? Have you ever been burned any time in your life? I'm not talking sunburn. I'm talking fire touched your flesh. And you had to live with the repercussions of that as your body healed. Oh man, pain. Right? Burns are incredible pain to go through. Hell for eternity. The smoke of their torment will ascend in the presence of God for all of eternity. These preachers that are dumbing it down, shameful, disgraceful, ungodly. We need to have a severity over our relationship with the Lord. Why? Because he's offered us the exit. He's given us the way of escape. He's given us the opportunity to be in his presence. I don't want any one of us. I don't any, want any one of us to miss that opportunity. Right? You know. Entrance to heaven, exit to hell. I don't want to be in the line waiting to be in the presence of the Lord and look across and see any face that has been in this room in the opposite line. We need to enter together. Amen? One congregation. 8.15. After that, the Levites shall go in to service the tabernacle of meeting. So you shall cleanse them and offer them like a wave offering, for they are wholly given to me from among the children of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of all who opened the womb, the firstborn of all the children of Israel. God is making claim to the firstborn. And he's going to explain a little bit of why. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both man and beast. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. The fact that I wiped out amongst the Egyptians the firstborn of man and beasts, but I did not wipe out the firstborn amongst the nation of Israel, makes it that I spared your firstborn. Therefore, they belong to me. The fact that I'm not going to take from amongst the firstborn of each of the tribes makes it such that the Levites are mine. This whole tribe now belongs to me and whatever I call them to do. Whatever their service to me is, that's what the tribe of Levi does. They do my bidding because you as a nation owe me all of your firstborn. Rather than taking your firstborn from each of the tribes, I'll just take the whole tribe of Levi. Remember, the book of Numbers, the Lord actually went through a process of saying, we've numbered the Levites. We've numbered the firstborn from amongst all the other tribes. You've got more amongst the firstborn of all the other tribes than I have in the tribe of Levi. So you owe me the sum value of the balance 
You have 500 more. You have to pay me for the 500 you're going to keep in each of your tribes. You're going to pay me that to balance out the scales of what I have in the tribe of Levi. For all the firstborn among the children of Israel are mine, both men and beasts. On the day I struck all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn of the children of Israel. I have given the Levites as a gift. Before we go any further, I want to remind you of Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11, where it says, And he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, referring giving to the church, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Those that the Lord has chosen and put into the ministry, he's saying, I have given them as a gift to you. Not as a burden to you. I've given them as a gift to you. You need to take care of them is what he's saying. Verse 19 of Numbers chapter 8. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons from among the children of Israel. To do the work for the children of Israel in the tabernacle of meeting. To make atonement for the children of Israel that there be no plague among the children of Israel when the children of Israel come near the sanctuary. New Testament reference, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, Paul told Timothy, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. When it comes to appointing leadership within the church, Paul says, take your time doing that. Don't do it quickly. It'll cost you in the end if you do it too hastily. Back in Numbers 8, looking at verse 20, Thus Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel did to the Levites, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So the children of Israel did to them. The Levites purified themselves and washed their clothes. Then Aaron presented them like a wave offering before the Lord, and Aaron made atonement for them to cleanse them. After that, the Levites went in to do their work in the tabernacle of meeting before Aaron and his sons, as the Lord commanded Moses concerning the Levites, so they did to them. This washing with the water to purify and sanctify, the shadow of things to come, the substances of Christ, the New Testament washing of water. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, looking at verse 9, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, notice that past tense statement, such were some of you, right? So that does include sodomites and homosexuals. They can become Christians regardless of what some people think, right? 
Some might even be amongst us this morning who've been sanctified by the Lord, washed, cleansed, and have forsaken that sin. So they can be. Such were some of you. But here's the statement. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. Jesus makes the statement about this New Testament cleansing in John chapter 15, verse 3, where he says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. It's the word that cleanses us, right? It's not our programs. It's not our methods. It's not even our fellowships or the steps we might take. It's the word that cleanses us. God's word is what purifies us. A further example of that, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 25, says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands, how do you love your wife as Christ loved the church? I like what Joe Foch said, pastor of Calvary Chapel in Philadelphia. He said, you enter her world and die there. That's the process. You enter her world and you die there. That's what Christ did for us, right? No, no amen there, right? That's what Christ did for us. And that's what we as husbands are called to do. So, right? Love her as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her by the washing of water by the word. Washing the water by the word. Listen, you, husband, are responsible for getting the word into your wife's life. I made the mistake as a young man to think that what this meant was I needed to preach to my wife. All the ladies are chuckling. <laughs> my wife doesn't want to hear my sermons <clears throat> any more than she normally does. She's already heard all of them. She knows all of my cross-references. She knows all of my illustrations. She knows all of my jokes. She doesn't want my sermon, but she does want the word of God. What I have done in regard to this more than anything is just read her the word. As far as me directly washing her with the water of the word, when I recognize that, I'll just ask her, can I read to you? And what would you like to hear? Not, hey, I got some verses I need to share with you. <clears throat> her wives, obey your husbands. And, you know, I just... <clears throat> More often than anything, what she says is just read the Psalms. Where would you, you want, to, want me to start right at one? No, just start somewhere in the middle and just open up and find a Psalm. And I'll quickly re read. And re no, she doesn't want to hear that one. I'm sure of it. Oh, she'll like this one and I'll just start reading. And I'll let, I'll let Jesus Christ and the word of God cleanse her. Whatever needs to happen in her heart is between her and the Lord. I'm not there to be the brain surgeon. I'm not there 
to correct the problem. I'm not there to be the Holy Spirit. I'm there obeying the Holy Spirit, simply delivering the word of God to that precious woman. Let the word do its work in her life. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Numbers chapter 8, verse 23, saying, This is what pertains to the Levites from 25 years old and above. One may enter to perform service in the work of the tabernacle of meeting. At the age of 50 years, they must cease performing this work and shall work no more. They may minister with their brethren in the tabernacle of meeting to attend to needs, but they themselves shall do no work. Thus you shall do to the Levites regarding their duties. The Levites, given as a gift by the Lord to the nation of Israel so that they could serve them with the sole purpose of helping this nation know God more intimately. That's their job, is to draw those people to the Lord. It isn't for them to perform judgment as much as Phineas needed to do that in chapter 25. Their job is to make it possible for the people to go from where they are into the presence of the Lord. That's our job. We're all a kingdom of priests, according to Jesus Christ. Every one of us is called to go into the world and draw people to the Lord. Be a light. Be that cleansing water. Let the world experience the Lord through you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray that you would help us to follow you with our lives, that we would be your ministers, that we would present to a lost, hopeless, sick, dying, confused world the clarity of you, the clarity of worshiping you and what it lends to our lives. Use us. Work in us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Baptize us with your Holy Spirit that we would be powerful witnesses for your work in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.